M1 is the finance super app that puts you in control of your wealth. Invest, borrow, save, and spend your money how you want with sophisticated automation tools to help you reach your financial goals more easily. 2021 is about rebuilding, building health, building wealth, and everything in between. I've been using M1 for years to manage my long-term investment portfolio. M1 lets me follow some of the top performing hedge funds like Code 2 and balance my pie based on what the pros are doing. It's truly my favorite investing app in the world. Go to m1finance.com slash Katoon to get started today and earn $30 to invest after you fund your account. Terms and conditions apply. M1, yours to build. We've got Kim Mai Cutler here from Initialized Capital. Uh, I'm a big fan of Initialized, big fan of Gary Tan. Previously, Alexis Ohana was involved with the fund. I was a big fan of him. Uh, and he's got the new fund. We've had a couple people on from Initialized in the past. You guys are major trendsetters in my mind in a lot of ways, not just uh, the type of companies that you guys invest in. Obviously, uh, with Gary, there's been a lot of publicity around Coinbase recently. But you know, I think the majority of people that I've talked to from Initialize, yourself included, don't come from your traditional VC background. And, you know, I went to, you know, I was studied finance and I was this, that, and the other thing, venture capitalists. These are people who have careers doing a lot of other things, yourself included. Welcome to the show, first off. No, thank you for having me. Um, so I want to I want to talk to you, before we get into Initialize, I want to talk to you about your, your background, because obviously this is a media show. I have a media background. Sam, who was on the on the, on the Zoom here a minute ago is my producer, uh, went to school to become a journalist and was particularly excited about this interview. So I'm, I'm curious to learn sort of about you personally before you came into an Initialized. Sure. Um, I've been involved in the tech industry to some extent pretty much my whole life. My parents worked in tech, my grandparents worked in tech. So like I have this like kind of unique historical perspective on Silicon Valley, where it's been, where it is now, where it's going. Um, and I'm not really sure like what a traditional venture background is per se. I would say that there is certainly a period and there's certainly a segment of people who have come more from the finance world or more from the MBA world. But even if you look at, you know, the whole history of the industry or of venture as a whole over the last 40, 50 years, there's also been plenty of operators. There's also been plenty of journalists as well. I grew up in this South Bay in Cupertino near Apple. And I was basically exposed to the industry pretty much my whole life. And throughout that, the industry has gone in different waves through concentration of power and decentralization of power. And then the era that I grew up in was very centralized, not, you know, not in like to some extent, you know, what it is today with big tech. But yeah, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, um, power is very centralized and companies like Microsoft and when I was growing up and I saw kind of the experience that my parents had at their workplace, it was very like hierarchical in corporate. And this was a pre-internet era. And so my impression of the industry was that it was more rigid than it actually was. And so, you know, from high school and college onward, I just decided I wanted to go in a completely different direction. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to talk to people. I wanted to learn a lot about the world. Um, and I ended up editing my college newspaper and then working abroad, um, covering finance for my first job out of college. So I covered like the financial crisis in 2008 and spent several years um, overseas. And then I decided to come back into the industry um, about 
10 years ago, kind of realizing there was like a lot of special things that I just didn't really appreciate about tech in general. And that like, you know, when you work in other industries or in other cities, maybe, maybe it's like less true today, but like at the, at the time, I would say what's always been special about tech where the Bay area is like people are generally pretty passionate about the work that they do. And if the work is not satisfying to them, they change. Whereas if, if you're in older, more, you know, hierarchical or vertical industries, um, you know, people spend a lot of time working up, you know, some old school ladder or whatever, and they're not necessarily satisfied in what they do. And I thought that was always just really special. Um, and it was something that I didn't appreciate initially. And so I came back about 10 years ago and started working in more at that time, like the media industry was also exploding and decentralizing in its own way. And that there were a lot of emergence of new media brands and companies that existed outside of like the traditional news providers. And so I ended up working with a bunch of those, um, including one that I was on the founding team of that we eventually sold and then um, with TechCrunch. And through that, I got to see and meet a whole breadth of founders and companies over the course of many years. Um, that I think it's ever, you know, in some respects, it's not dissimilar to taking pitches today. The lens is a little bit different because the lens for what an interesting story is and the lens for what a great company is sometimes overlap, sometimes not. But there's some overlap in the skill set of being able to like talk to someone for an hour and like have a sense of like, wow, this person is very, you know, both has a very broad vision of what they want to do, but also has very, a very tactical mindset about what needs to happen in the shorter, medium term to make that vision come to fruition. It's, it's funny the way that you tell the story, because when I'm in Chicago, which is where we're based and spend time with a lot of investors in New York, and it obviously has changed a lot, not because of COVID, but as a result of sort of Twitter VC and Miami and people moving to Miami and Silicon Valley sort of having a little bit of a, a sec, I don't know, I don't even know what the word to describe Silicon Valley right now is. But yeah. Yeah. When, I, when I talk to Chicagoans, the number of venture capital people, which obviously is significantly less than in uh, Silicon Valley, are almost always former for, the Fortune 500 cutout chairman of X, yeah. make their money, you know, in banking and in things like that. A lot of I bankers turn the only operators for the, you know, not, not necessarily today, but the first, let's just say 2000 to like 2010, 12, 13 here in, in the Chicago area. And even in New York as well, it's wall street guys, it's traders. Uh, the operators would get involved would be like someone who had a massive exit and they're brought on as a GP or they're, they're brought in somewhere into the mix for experience to add value to the, to the portfolio there is now a group of like had made enough money that they decided we wanted to get into, you know, real investing as a professional career. And you're seeing more operators who are investors in Chicago. You describe it in Silicon Valley, like, Oh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of everything. And it's like here, it's just not the case. Like there's, it's so rare that you make a pitch and the person you're talking to is like, Oh yeah, I founded, you know, these four companies finally had a success. Like that conversation is just really rare. So it's, it's interesting yeah. as you tell it. Cause I'm like, Oh man, I wish. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, when I, when I look at like, I, I mean, I've also written like, you know, some histories of venture myself. I've written some essays about the history of venture and like the very first canonical sort of venture, you know, like Ar Arthur Rock, he had a finance background and you look at like Kleiner Perkins and he was like kind of like a, you know, mid-level manager. I think at Hewlett Packard. I don't know. I mean, there's also been lots of journalists as well. I mean, like the most famous one, prolific, successful one, of course, being Mike Moritz at Sequoia. Yep. 
I think there has been a mix. And my impression of venture in general is like the 90, like every time there's a huge surge frenzy, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, but like, you know, in the mid nineties, mid nineties attracted a lot of MBA and finance types yeah. into the, the industry. And then I think we saw another wave of that in the mid to 2010s. I think we're in the middle of, I mean, I think we're obviously in the middle of a different kind of wave. We'll yeah. see how long it lasts with the way the economy is and, and why, but I think one of the reasons that I've noticed a lot of media people have a lot of success here. Yeah. And obviously you can tell me yes or no on this, but I think when you're, you talk about like tech crunch and sort of the experience you had when you're in the middle of the disruption that media has experienced over the last 25 years, in particular, the last like five years, but, mm-hmm. but they're about, um, I think it's, it's just, it is a kind of experience that only few, few people would be able to actually have had. And I think it, it sort of is the beginning of what is the, the wave for all of the other companies you're going to see in the future, like this transformation to digital and how entire revenue models are completely imploded and the hierarchy and how you hire and fire and move every, it's totally different. So as a media person, you're like, when I see a company pitch me on how to disrupt something or whatever they're going to do, I, I feel like I genuinely can see it better than a lot of the people. Cause I've, I've been in an industry that I literally watched the entire thing blow up and reconstruct right in front of me. Yeah. And, it, and it's not even like a persistent, like it's reconstructed itself into a, a like a stable thing. It's actually, no, it's still going. Constantly <laughs> dynamic. I mean, I would say the, the more recent wave of folks with media backgrounds or journalistic backgrounds heading into industry is because, you know, firms, both new middle age, I don't know what to call it, or more established, like have all realized that they need to have their own direct media channels, particularly in a more remote world, because like, you know, there were fewer firms in general, 10, 20 years ago. And, you know, there's some firms that to this day, I mean, it's just like their logo on a website and that's it. And then like the reputation and the mysterious, like fancy offices down on Sand Hill Road or now up in in San Francisco, um, you know, founders go and pitch them. But like increasingly, you know, if, if many of our founders are remote, um, the way that you're going to attract deal flow is, is by having your own direct line of communication with an audience or community. A hundred percent. And I think also the value add, um, you know, the days, not, not, if you're Sequoia, you're not worried about deal flow. Like people, people are going to find their way to you. But if you're anyone in between and, and the people you mentioned, you just have a logo on a website, we take their checks too. It's fine. Um, yeah. But it's, it's a, what I've noticed is, that they, they do get passed up on some really primo deals because they're not the first person to vet a deal anymore. It mm-hmm. used to be like, hey, you know, it was a direct introduction from a portfolio founder or somebody right. else who knew somebody and they'd say, hey, you should talk to these guys. They were great. Reputation precedes themselves. That There's no dispute that they're good. But if I'm on Twitter and I'm talking about what I'm building in public, as they say, and a handful of individuals who are founders now turned investors or operators turned investors or just straight up people like, like Gary, yeah. I'm gonna, they're going to hear from me first. I'm going to hear from them first. It, it gives you, I think, a, a, a major advantage, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that particularly if you have like, I mean, we're less of a thesis. We're not really a thesis-driven fund. We're more of a network-driven fund. But I think for certain subsets of investors that have like a very specific focus, you can generate a lot of deal flow in that particular area. So like in my case, like I've written a lot about like housing and real estate and prop tech. And so I just see a lot of prop tech and real estate and housing related deal flow um, because of that. uh, And because of that history of both writing and advocacy. And then Gary obviously has his YouTube channel. We also have great investors in the firm 
who don't like doing media, like we have a, a great GP, Brett Gibson, who does a lot of crypto deals. And of course, Initialize has, has, has a brand in crypto because of Coinbase and other investments. Um, but he, he doesn't do media, but he has great deal flow and great um, returns. So yeah, like I said, yeah. it's not a mutually exclusive. I, I do think that it yeah. certainly lends itself. There, there are advantages. You'd argue both sides have advantage. I think anytime that you can access a network and build it quickly in public and grow an audience, it just, it, it just compounds the ability to have success faster. There's more people paying attention. I don't want to leave without talking about this also, the, uh, speaking of real estate stuff. What are you seeing in this market? I, I, you know, I have two companies that raised a fairly significant amount of money in prop tech, uh, one called Second Avenue and another one I don't think we're supposed to talk about, so I'll leave alone. And the early thing was COVID is going to change everything. There's going to be a housing dip. We're going to buy up all these lots. It's built to rent and da 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 and then that didn't happen. And then it was like, oh, it's going to happen in the fall. But then that didn't happen. And here we are in spring, summer of 2020. Yeah, I mean, millennials are in prime family formation years. And we never recovered new housing starts after the last recession. So, you know, we are in a period where we are experiencing the lowest, you know, available housing inventory, you know, in the history of modern recorded data over the last several decades at a time when people want bigger houses because they're having families or living multi-generationally or they're working from home. And, and I thought with COVID, the one thing that was going to be an advantage is a lot of the kids that I know, kids, I don't know why I just said that, but people who are younger yeah. uh, moved out of Chicago and came out to the suburbs, myself included. And I thought that was going to be a big jump start. And obviously our, our housing prices have gone through the roof, but I look at companies like Open Door and Redfin, obviously, and Zillow, uh, that are doing this. And, and I, you see BlackRock and, and all these others like getting heavily involved. And I'm just kind of like, what should we be like, those of us who are investors who want to participate in that kind of stuff, what should we be looking for? What are, what are things that you look for when you're looking for real estate related companies, areas that you think are going to be a big pop? I mean, with the companies that we've done, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like addressing a hair on fire problem for people. Like we're in a company called Landed that does shared equity mortgages. And like, we're seeing that teachers and healthcare workers and then middle-class essential professionals across the United States can't afford to live in the um, communities that they work in. Yep. That's a hair on fire problem. They need it solved. And they also have exceptionally low CAC because they partner with employers versus That's going smart. like expensive, like direct, you know, customer, you know, the, the normal CAC route for fintech companies. I would write a check on that pitch, on your pitch yeah. for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Done. Yeah. And then, and then the secondary unit problem is like, yeah, a middle, you know, like, I don't even know. I mean, I don't even know. Is the Bay Area median home price? Is it above a million? I mean, in California, it's like 800K now across the whole state. It went from 500 to 800K in a year. We're like um, 480. Which is like we've been banging on the ground for like 50. 10 years. We're like, you got to build more housing. You got to make it easier. And like no one, you know, the same people who are vote all the time, who tend to be older property owners, like, you know, la, 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 la. You know, they kind of go down their thing and like nothing really changed. And yeah, like housing's like $300,000 more expensive than it was a year ago. But yeah, you know, like <laughs> people for a lot of reasons want to stay on the West Coast because it's like, you know, I'm third generation Bay Area, you know, as millennials are entering prime family formation years, we have like more seniors and people aging and people want to age in place and multi-generational housing is a thing that is common in the rest of the world, but wasn't, you know, particularly common here after we suburbanized, but like is a norm elsewhere that is probably going to become more and more prevalent here. Um, so it's like an obvious hair on fire problem. So you, you mentioned your experience in prop tech. I've had, you know, one career 
many years ago for me, uh, was in property management and have been involved in several companies that are in that sort of open door realm. I'm just curious, uh, you know, what you look for and initialize this position, what they're looking for, and, and tell us a little bit about initialize. I know most people here should be familiar with initialize both through your guys' uh, normal social, but also people that have been on the show before. Initialized is um, a seed generalist fund. We're network driven. Um, we were founded about 10 years ago um, by our uh, you know, managing partner, Gary Tan, along with Harj Tagar, who is at YC, and then Alexis Sahanian. And you know, Fund One was a small $7 million fund that ended up being invested in Coinbase and Instacart. And then over time, that fund grew into more of a, you know, a larger institutional firm, which is what initializes today. And like our most recent fund is 230 million. We do C checks, series A checks. As I said, because we're network driven, we have investments across like a whole swath. We, we have health tech investments. We have new banks. We have, you know, some of the companies that I'm in that are related to housing and real estate and mobility. And then obviously like a crypto portfolio. It's a big fund now, and we do about 20 deals a year or so. It's funny, we're, we're changing gears here to the founder side of things. Um, I know that you speak a lot about how founders should pitch and sort of the evolution of the pitch. And I'm sure maybe you're not familiar, you know, the Technori's base going back to 2010 is, is like startup showcase. It's companies pitching. We've had thousands and thousands of pitches. Mm-hmm. I hear, you know, literally dozens of pitches a week. And I'll write these pitch reviews on Substack and it's, it's grown something of a following that way. And I've, I've noticed an evolution of how founders pitch and it went from like, let me tell you how big the TAM is to there was a brief period of time where it was cool to tell people how much money raised. Don't recommend mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. as a starting point. And then there's kind of like the Simon Sinek, we start with why, and now I'm starting to see it kind of gravitate back to like, here's, here's a problem, here's a solution, here's how we help, here's what people think of us. And you know, here's traction. I'm curious what you guys are seeing and what stands out to you there's like two, there's like two questions buried in one here, Kim. There's the yeah. one is what are you seeing? And one, the other one is like, what do you suggest as, as like a way to, to pitch as opposed to what you see? So I think at the seed stage, I actually like the problem solution. And here's what we've done to date. Here's what we've done so, so far. Me too. I'm a fan of that. Just I'm, to I'm be like, upfront. I'm just a fan of like the more tactical approach, which is like, here's customers, they're hair on fire with this problem. And here's our solution to this problem. And we've built this much so far. And this is the level of customer interest that we have. Tam at the seed, um, you know, when I, when we look back at our biggest investments, pretty much in almost all cases, like the Tam as it presently existed or as it existed at, at that time, didn't really, this didn't really zero exist. or none. <laughs> yeah. Or it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't zero it's or not none. zero, I mean, but it's like, it's a lot has to happen. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, become... you definitely want to see the founder has put some thought into it, but it's less important than the, like, then here's what they've built to date. Like you want to see that they put together a team that has actually been able to construct something together. Um, you know, it may not be a fully fleshed out product yet, but like, clearly there's some evidence that this team can execute together and they have a very clear defined, you know, definition of the problem and clear definition of what they're doing. I feel like one of the things that, and and I get this from the founders who come on the show, both who are very successful as well as those that are very early, that there is a pressure to form fill their deck or their pitch based on what others have told them is successful. In other words, you know, like there's a story of Stephen Galanis from Cameo who raised 63 million with no deck. Like mm-hmm. 
Some people have a certain way about them that enables them to do that. Not that's not typical. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this, this sort of predisposition for, I think founders to be like looking up, like what is a good series a deck? And then they follow it up and it's like, your metrics aren't the same. Like no. it, I wouldn't lead with like, here's, here's our DAU. Like yeah. it doesn't well, we make do, like, we focus do it, on what you do. Yeah. Internally we do a pitch practice. We do pitch, we do a whole like kind of pitch series a bootcamp with every founder initialized. If we fund them in its seed. Yep. We kind of coach them on how to pitch for the follow-on round. And typically, like, you know, the first practice pitch, yeah, I mean, it is rough around the edges. It's like the deck isn't, like, perfectly designed yet. And then the story ends usually ends up being, like, longer or more rambling than it should be. Yep. And so then we kind of give them feedback. I'm like, okay, you need to tighten this up. And then there's this other piece, which is, like, some founders are really amazing at, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but creating, like, the energy and the FOMO, like, if you oh, don't yeah. back tomorrow, you're going <laughs> to, there's, there's yeah. definitely something to be said for like the, the charlatanness. And I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, but there is a yeah. little bit of a, the, I call it founder complex, but there's like something there where like, they're able to hit this other stratosphere that other people have with self doubt where like yeah. their, their yeah, self doubt like disables them. Other people are kind of low energy or like, yeah. you have to kind of like psych them out. Like you have to have like the the psych about kind of speech before they go out and like hit the court sort of, so to speak. Um, But yeah, I mean, the ideal combination is when they're like super captivating and exciting and you know, you, you just, you want to go on this like 10 year journey with them and they have the numbers. And like, if you have both of those things, then yeah. Yeah. So when you, you were talking about kind of prepping for series A, how do you view that differently? Particularly for companies that let's assume that uh, we don't talk about like TAM, but like, let's assume that, a, a company um, did their seed round. It's a million bucks, whatever it is. They're, they're proving a couple of, of theses out. They've said to you, this is what we were going to set out to prove. We did that. When they go from seed money to like, we're ready for a series A, what are some of the differentiations that you not only see, but also recommend focusing on? Because I, I think you get lost sometimes into like, we'll just reboot our, our seed deck. Update yeah, no, the no, no, and no, it's like, that's that. not, it's yeah. not the same ask. Like I mean, the all. seed deck, the seed deck is like, the seed deck is like, can you build this thing? And, you know, could be a lot of people really, really want it. Right. Yeah. And like, do you have the right team? But, you know, you don't, it, it's a little, it can be more speculative. Right. But the series A is like, you have clear data and evidence of yeah. product market fit. Well, you, you built it and people want the thing and they're giving you, you money for it. Do you lead with like, would you just go straight to leading with that? Cause I, I feel like for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if, I think if you have the numbers, you should lead with that. If you have the number, I mean, if you have the numbers, if you're like, we've grown, you know, X, you know, year over year this much over the last year and you have that crazy chart and and yeah, I would lead with that. Like, if any founders are listening to this, I, I hope they recorded that point because I the number yeah. of, I, I cannot tell you, I'm sure you see this more than I do. The number of decks that I've seen from companies that I really, honest to God, I can't tell you why I read to the last page. I have no reason. I don't know, but I did. And I get to the last page and there's a hockey stick. And I'm like, like at least 85% of the people who saw this deck quit on the third slide. You, you literally, you put the goods in the back, like put it in the front. You have to put the side. It's like, this is, this is working. If you invest X many dollars, like this machine that I have built is going to produce this much revenue and this much growth. And so, I mean, if, at Series A, you can lead with that. At Seed, it's in many cases, you're, you're not having product market fit. You're, you're yeah. still building the thing. So like the Seed investment is more about the team and, you know, where the product could go. But Series what do you, A is like, 
What? what do you think about the the product market fit piece of this? Because I, I, it's a massively important topic, but it's also a little bit murky because it's like, obviously to scale and be successful, the cost of user acquisition is going to have to either be repaid in the lifetime of the customer is going to be a long high value. Um, you may have such a small sample size of the market that you currently have been able to penetrate due to marketing dollars or whatever the case may be. How do you look at like between series, between seed and A and maybe even the B, like how do you look at, okay, I'm seeing evidence of product market fit versus like, oh, I, I think you guys have it. And now it's a matter of like, just how do you lean it? How do you become more efficient? In the good cases, like it's pulling you and it's really obvious. You're selling this many things and you're, you know, you're, you're like backed up on, I don't know, inventory or something, or like, you know, like you have to figure out supply chain management at a totally different level. If you've got like a physical product that you're selling, or you've got to hire, you know, team members to fulfill the sales, to, like it, 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 you know, in, a, in, in the good case, like it's very, it's quite obvious. Yep. In the medium case, that's, that's much harder. That's probably the hardest. Yeah. Cause I, like we look at, you know, even the companies that I'm involved with, like I, I see tremendous growth in some of them, some of them not. I would argue that some of the ones that have actually not the greatest growth actually have a more passionate, uh, hungry customer base who love their product. It's just a matter of like, how do they get it in front of more people right. and, and start the virality coefficient and all this other kind of stuff. But it's tough. It's, it's tough to like tell a founder, like when they say to you, you ask the question, like, do we have product market fit? And like, how do you feel about it? And I'm like, I can't answer. Like, I don't, I, I don't think I actually, you... I mean, do we, we don't ask that question so much as like, you know, I mean, you know, where is, we get it all the time. I see it in like, maybe it's a Midwest thing. Like they want sales and revenue, but it is. No, like, no, no. I mean, we ask sales and revenue. I mean, we, of ask course, for of the, we ask for the quantitative numbers, but I don't know if we do we, I mean, how many times have we asked a more generalist kind of question? Like, do you feel like you have product market fit? I don't know if I, I think we just look at more at the numbers. Um, we need more West coast deal flow is what I'm telling yeah. you. <laughs> That's what we need. Um, so I, I want to just talk to you now a little bit about now that you are fully in this and working with Initialize, you've been at this for a while, um, sort of thoughts and lessons. You talked a little bit at the beginning of the show about the direction that Silicon Valley may or may not be going in. And it's not just Silicon Valley. I think we're starting to get more of a decentralized global uh, investors. You got rolling funds popping up, I think, every day. They're almost all um, coming from some Pompliano brother of sorts. And um, I, I'm just curious, like, where do you see things going, good or bad? Um, and just general feelings on venture capital at this current, you know, mark in time. So, I mean, I think with the, you know, the rolling funds and I could be wrong here, but my impression is when I think about like how funds establish themselves, like the first fund or two funds is like, they're like, can you get into the deal? Right. Or can you yeah. get, can you get in the cap table? And then the later funds are more about, you know, do you provide so much value to the founder or and the team that you can also, you can both invest more and, um, you know, like in, in, in invest. Stay on the cap table. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Stay on the cap table. Exactly. So, you know, then the question I have for the rolling funds is like, which ones will scale up to have more of an enduring large scale institutional base for stay rolling versus staying small with lots of different contributors and smaller checks that are harder to defend. So I, I guess that's my, my question is like for the funds that are popping up now, which ones are going to be around for the long, the long haul? Yeah. It's a big question. And, you know, obviously this has come no, it come as no surprise. I've been asked literally a dozen times to do a rolling fund or start it. And I just can't, 
can't get my head around it. I just, like in my head, I'm like, you have to have a strong network of investors who bring value every time. And they're open and willing to not only put, this is a tiny check for companies usually that are in an early stage. Yeah. And you need to have founders, or I'm sorry, investors who are part of this rolling fund that are like, I'm not only gonna do this check, I'm gonna make five intros with it. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna bring enough value that I yeah. am gonna stay here. And, and then you'll have success. And if the rolling fund has success, you'll probably turn it into a real fund. And all those mm-hmm. same people will probably invest in that fund and then you'll grow and you've got initialized in some regards. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's your sense of what it takes to manage a rolling fund on the, like the LP side? I think it's a pain in the butt. I think yeah. it's something that um, you're a media person. So I'll use media, media lingo. Mm-hmm. This isn't lingo, but media examples. It's like a podcast. Every successful CEO says, I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to start a Substack. They write three times no one reads it, listens to it, or watches it, and they quit. Mm-hmm. I think this is a very similar thing like, oh, I've got a following. I'm going to do this. It, it only comes to a point where you have to make calls, and it becomes a job where you're calling for money, and you're trying to keep your rolling fund going, and more people contributing, and, and keep this ball rolling. It becomes a job, and it's not as fun to tell people that I have a rolling fund. I, I think it can get kind of messy, and if this isn't your main job, and you're not 100% focused on it, yeah. I think it becomes a lot of work and can be a lot, quite frankly, it could be a lot of legal bills, honestly. Yeah, yeah makes sense. And it's, you know, like, I guess the, the counter here is, you know, Chris Saka just tweeted this out about uh, his fund early on. Yeah, I saw was, that. Very, very right. Great. So he's like, I couldn't make the cap call. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I got deal flow for days. I, I like worked my way into deals that nobody could have gotten into other than him at that exact time. And even that guy could almost barely make it work. And it's like the rolling fun is the counter to that, right? That those people being like, oh, I don't need to have that kind of problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they all, they all come with trouble. And I mean, there's a huge upside, right? So like everything is going to be kind of, it's difficult to be successful. Right. Makes sense. Where do you see things going from a, a venture capital? Uh, you know, evaluations right now are fairly high. I mean, we're seeing deals that are many cases like this is, I mean, like it's like 2X what it was pre-pandemic. Yeah. So everything is, yeah, everything is more richly valued. Um, but also, you know, the whole universe of tech companies all the way from seed to, you know, publicly traded companies and publicly traded companies valuations is so much larger. Like when you look at the, like the market cap of big tech or not even big tech, but of like, you know, SaaS companies, you know, what it is today versus what you would have thought it could have been five or 10 years ago. The whole universe is just so much larger and deeper um, than anybody could imagine. Uh, to, to give you perspective, right, on this, this isn't to you, you have perspective. To the audience, to give perspective. Yeah. Um, one of my friends started a company called Sprout Social. It's publicly traded now. A lot of people use it for, for their social media management. Justin Howard, brilliant guy. They, it went public. I want to say when they IPO'd, the number was like $15 and change, settled out around 16 or 17 bucks. I bought a ton of, a ton of stock because I believe that he's an a, a absolute stud at running a business. It's trading at $92 today. And if you ask, and it was like two years ago. If you asked yeah. me two years ago what I would have sold all my shares at and been like, I felt good, 34, 35 bucks. Yeah. It's three times higher yeah. than I, just, I, just looked than it I was like, like best oh, it's outcome. Five, it's like a $5 billion company. And then when you think about that and you think about all the talent, the operator early stage talent contained within that company, the knowledge base that they have, like what skills oh, they have man. to offer, what they could like take into a new company 
or into funding or advising a whole host of new companies. It's like an endlessly fractally deep world in terms of, yeah, in, in terms of what the, the market opportunities are. They were one of those companies that I, I feel like it's kind of like a model I look for now when I look for not just uh, IPO, but companies to invest in. Strong technical understanding of the problem. Not just they have a good tech team, but like technically understood the challenges of a- updating APIs every single day. Social media is not something you control. We know how to, to stay ahead of it. And their understanding of competitors and acquisitions as a startup to me was one of the most advanced I'd ever seen. They've, they've acquired nearly anything and anyone that's come in their, in their path that they could plug and play and make better. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like you start, you're starting to see operators who are on their second and third try here are doing really well at the acquisition stage, you know, between the like B and the C and the C and the D and D and up where they're really starting to up that the skill set of, of like, I think they run companies better than a lot of public companies, to be honest. Yeah. So last question, and then I let you go. We all got busy days. Do you spend any time paying attention to like crowdfunding and, and like anything like that in the equity crowdfunding, like the Reg CF, Reg A, A plus, any of that kind of stuff? I mean, we have in the past. I think our main question has always been, how do you handle adverse selection? I don't know if that's like, I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen or won't, like there isn't a space for it, but there is, there is still that, that issue. I think that issue exists a lot. And I think yeah. there's, there's a lot of challenges here, but the one thing that I'm, I'm really curious on your thoughts on this, to be honest, is like, you know, like Republic and previously I was doing stuff with micro ventures and I like see that there's a million of them now where I have seen some interesting deals. And it, this is a major, major regret for me. I saw Coinbase pop on the secondary before IPO, right before COVID. And my wife was like, we're going to move into a house. She doesn't talk like that. She's giving me a piss. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have to move into a house. And I was like, ah, oh, but I have this money that I could put into uh, Coinbase on this secondary. And yeah. it was run through, I think it was uh, MicroVentures at the time. I didn't do it. Obviously, you know how this ends. Coinbase's yeah. IPO went through the roof. I think that that is a space for the right investor. I think it should. It still is accredited. I think it should remain accredited for at least a period of time or some sort of knowledge base. But- yeah, I guess, I guess the question is like relative to what, right? So- you know, if, if you're like an accredited investor and you want to buy in secondary markets, like established companies that are already, you know, raised from like top tier funds, that there's obviously a space for that. But I guess when I heard your question, I was thinking about it more like, you At know, the front end. like what does the founder want? And like, does the founder want to deal with like a long, you know, long tail of infinity investors, you know, and managing all of the long tail of that, of you know, who knows who is in their company? versus like a small number of participants that, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of time managing, let's say. Yep. In the same way, like, you know, if you were to run your own rolling fund, how many different LPs would you have to communicate with and satisfy and make happy? Obviously there's a space for it, but you know, when, where, for whom, and what's their best alternative? Yeah. I, so I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I, I think from the front end of this, when I look at like with Republic, done a bunch of deals with them. I invested in Republic. You don't have to deal with the investors themselves. Like the the 10,000, whatever, 2,000 people who put $100 or $500, they're all on an SPV and it's at a crowd safe. And most times yeah. out of not, uh, the safe ends up getting bought now. Like Will and Trust was one of the examples of that. Um, but I guess I, I'm curious how you think that impacts real, like I almost said real funds, but but like real funds, like how how does that, I got to imagine there's some impact on on major funds who are talking to founders who are, are good, like Gumroad was on Republic as well. And they're like, hey, we can raise 5 million bucks on a digital campaign. I don't have to deal with any of this, no preferences, no nothing. 
does it have an impact or is it still too small a number of success stories to where like it actually yeah, I don't, I don't think we really see it. I think that they're, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's more a question of like, there's founders that obviously can like self-sustain and run long-term profitable businesses, but like how yeah. many founders, I mean, how many, do you, are there examples of companies that have, are, you know, making nine figures in revenue or companies that could go public from a. Yeah. I mean, I think trust, uh, I don't know if I said will and trust last time, but it's yeah. will. Okay. Yeah. So like, those guys, you know, I invested in through crowdfunding. They bought my shares out when they raised their last one. I think they're doing really well. You know, Gum Road is one that probably won't for all the reasons that the founder says, but like yeah. potentially could be a lot of success. Sure. And then there's a handful in there, like Elemental Health is another one that, mm-hmm. you know, was done that way. And then they went to YC and now like they're a different company. Like when I got to invest in them for peanuts, it was before they went to YC and now like, that founder was a doctor who was really smart in learning business. And now he's a like legit, you know? And so there'll, there'll be some of those, but to your point, like eight years, nine years to IPO, they've been doing this since like 2016, you know, the first two years, I think you'd almost scrap. Like, I'm not sure there was a lot of good companies that were coming through and now you're starting to see some real ones. So maybe five yeah, maybe, years maybe now, it just, come back maybe and- yeah, maybe it takes time to mature as an instrument of capital. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting. I'm a, I'm a fan of anything that changes things up and gives everyone an opportunity to participate, but I, I stand by you in this sort of point where it's like, ugh, will it get there? I'm not sure. Uh, will it have a long-standing impact? Yeah. And I would say, I mean, I, I would say for companies that have been super successful, some subset of them like took off like right away and, yeah. you know, and then it was more a question of picking, but then there are other companies that, you know, took a little bit longer to, to figure out their product market fit situation. And in that case, is it helpful to have like one deeply invested partner that can do a bridge or do something like that? You know, like an SPV, like there might not be a participant who's going to help, like help the company, like bridge to the next stage. This is a podcast for a different day. I really do think like the use case of crowdfunding has been mis It was misbranded in the beginning. It's like, it's like Kickstarter, but with equity, it was the first mistake that happened. And since then, I think it's been misused. And, and I think as it starts to evolve, you'll see use cases. I think actually using it as a bridge is probably a better instrument yeah. than actually using it the way that it has been used. So super fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and share all this and, and talking to us about all this stuff. Great. Thank you for having me. Of course. If you're interested in self-directed investing from startups to crypto and public markets, my Substack is a great way to learn how professional investors screen, review, and pull the trigger on deals. Join the largest community of micro-investors and startup founders on Substack by going to katoon.com.